Thank you very much, and I should say at the outset that this is very much a talk uh, rather than a prepared lecture. I'm hoping that I've got about 25 minutes of material and we'll be able to leave a little bit of space for a question or two at the end. Um, what I wanted to do when I was asked to contribute to this series was to try and give a talk uh, that would make some specific reference uh, to Oxford University and the Bodleian Library in particular. Uh, so I have chosen uh, two figures um, who both studied as undergraduates in Oxford and one of them was in addition uh, for a while a, a fellow of an Oxford college and both of whom have uh, left their papers uh, to uh, the modern political archives uh, in Oxford. And so there is a very direct connection between the Bodleian Library's holdings and some of the things I'm going to say today, although there is a little twist in that tale which I will come to later. Uh, so uh, the uh, title for this, I think, was The Problem of Propaganda or The Trouble with Propaganda. I can't remember exactly which of those two titles I used. Uh, and I will now give you a subtitle, which is A Tale of Two Liberals. The two liberals I am considering are of two different generations. Uh, the first of them uh, is James Bryce, uh, who was born in 1838. Uh, he uh, studied um, as an undergraduate at Trinity College and was later a fellow at Oriel College briefly uh, before going on to a very uh, distinguished career in public service, uh, climaxing before the First World War in his stint uh, as ambassador to the United States. Uh, ambassador to Washington, 1907 to 1913. So this is one of the two figures I will be talking about today. The other is uh, Arthur Ponsonby, uh, who was an undergraduate at Balliol uh, in 1871 and then goes on uh, to serve as a diplomat, first in Constantinople and then in Copenhagen, and then resigns um, from uh, the uh, Foreign Service uh, to become Parliamentary Private Secretary to Arthur Campbell Bannerman, uh, and then succeeds uh, Campbell Bannerman um, in his parliamentary seat after Campbell Bannerman's early death, uh, succeeds uh, Campbell Bannerman in Stirling, uh, where he is uh, MP for Stirling at the outbreak of the First World War. The reason I have picked these two figures is each of them uh, has the responsibility for two of, for one of the key texts each, so two of the key texts, in the discussion of British propaganda in the First World War. Bryce um, is uh, the lead figure on what becomes uh, known as the, uh, as the Bryce Committee, um, the committee to investigate uh, alleged German outrages, uh, which is set up uh, by the British government um, in late 1914, uh, and which reports uh, in May 1915 uh, in its uh, report on uh, the alleged German outrages, which is also better known as the Bryce Report. Uh, and the Bryce Report is one of the uh, central documents of British First World War propaganda. Ponsonby um, resigns from, uh, sorry, uh, is one of the, those who um, uh, votes against the war, one of five MPs who votes against the war uh, in August 19, uh, 1914, uh, and resigns um, uh, in the course of the war from the Liberal Party, joins the Labour Party at the end of the war, and in 1928, 
Ponsonby publishes a book uh, entitled Falsehood in Wartime, uh, which is an attack on the propaganda of all nations, at least in, in, in theory, this is uh, the way he presents it, but which overwhelmingly concentrates on a condemnation of British wartime propaganda, uh, which he sees as being uh, a construction of lies um, from top to bottom. Uh, so Ponsonby's book, Falsehood in Wartime, has ever since its publication in 1928 played a very large role in shaping our idea about what British wartime propaganda was. So um, these are the two men, and I'll say a little bit more um, about um, uh, the background in each case. Um, Bryce, um, as a man born in the early Victorian period, is very much, I think, uh, within the framework of Gladstonian liberalism. Um, indeed, um, one of his first uh, political uh, epiphanies is his support uh, in 1859-1860 for the cause of Italian independence. He nearly goes off and volunteers to join uh, Garibaldi. Um, and he um, is also very heavily involved uh, in the Gladstonian campaign over uh, the Eastern question in the 1870s. First of all, of course, the issue in 1876 of uh, Turkish atrocities um, uh, in, 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 in the Balkans. Uh, and then Bryce is a very early advocate of um, humanitarian support and relief to the Armenians um, from the 1870s onwards, a, a cause that he will revisit, actually, through uh, his entire career. Um, Bryce, although um, not particularly vocal, is quietly a critic of British government policy in South Africa uh, during the Boer War. Um, he doesn't come out, as it were, as, a, as an outright pro-Boer, uh, but he is certainly someone who feels um, that uh, many of the policies being conducted by the then Tory government uh, would be seen as inhumane. Um, and so we're dealing with a man who has a track record of what we might now think of as leanings towards internationalist interventionist uh, humanitarian liberalism. Now, Ponsonby um, uh, um, enters Parliament in... Uh, 1906 in, in, in the Liberal landslide, um, and very quickly gets himself involved uh, in controversy um, in 1908 uh, by voting against the proposed visit by Edward VII, uh, the proposed royal visit to Russia uh, at this point. And this is, of course, a point of, um, in an extension of the Entente Cordiale, um, the development of an um, Anglo-Russian Entente, largely over the issue of Persia, um, in which um, the British are beginning to also open to uh, their traditional uh, imperial rival. Uh, but Ponsonby, of course, objects uh, to this, particularly uh, because this is about the idea of a royal visit to Tsar Nicholas II, uh, who at this moment, if you think about the context of 1908, is seen as having the blood of protesters from the 1905 revolution on his hands. And, of course, this is a, a height, really, of the immediate post-1905 repression uh, uh, which is uh, going on um, in, in the Russian Empire. So again, someone with, a, with an interest um, in uh, what might be called international human rights. Um, Ponsonby is very much a leading critic of um, British foreign policy in the years running up 
uh, to the First World War, very suspicious of movements of Britain away from uh, neutrality towards what might be considered the Franco-Russian camp. He worries that Britain is being entangled um, in the alliance system and drawn into war. Um, so he's quite worried about Gray's ten, uh, um, um, Edward Gray's tendencies uh, as foreign minister. And of course, this is the background uh, to his vote against the war um, in August 1914, which he feels has, has, Britain has been lured into the war under false pretenses that Britain has, uh, through Gray and through the military conversations, has actually made far more commitments uh, to the Franco-Russian alliance uh, than had ever been admitted to Parliament. Interestingly, when the First World War breaks out, there is a moment where Bryce and Ponsonby actually come together. Ponsonby becomes a member of what is known as the Bryce Group. Um, and this is a group of uh, sort of a liberal think tank, uh, which is talking about uh, the post-war future of international relations. Uh, it is from this Bryce Group that you have the emergence of things like the Union of Democratic Control. Uh, so it brings together some figures like Bryce, who are very much supporters of the war, and people like Ponsonby, who are critics of it. Um, but of course, this um, is a um, sort of parallel track from a rather different um, set of circumstances involving uh, the issue of Bryce's work on investigation um, of uh, the alleged German outrages. So I'm now going to turn to the two uh, publications, uh, and first of all, uh, to the Bryce report. Um, it is published uh, to great acclaim um, in May 1915, shortly after uh, the sinking of the Lusitania. Uh, and so in some respects, the, the Bryce report on, on, on German outrages in Belgium feeds into an intensification of anti-German feeling, not only um, in the United Kingdom, but also, and crucially, in the United States. And of course, one of the reasons why Bryce had been asked to put his name at the, at the flag of this is he is such a credible figure in Washington. Uh, Americans trust him. Uh, they, they, they believe in him. They, they also don't see him as a, a prejudiced anti-German figure. Uh, Bryce had, after all, studied in Heidelberg and is in some ways actually uh, genuinely rather sympathetic to Germany. Um, the Bryce report details at great length uh, German army atrocities in the course of the invasion of Belgium um, and uh, is seen at that time as conclusive proof of uh, the Schrecklich Heik, the, the, the frightfulness, what we would now probably translate as terrorism, of the German way of making war. Um, it is not, though, without its critics, and in, these include one member of the Bryce Committee itself, uh, Harold Cox, who resigns from the Bryce Committee um, over the issue of the failure to cross-examine uh, the witnesses who have been uh, deposed for, for the committee uh, in what he would see as a proper legalistic fashion. There are other criticisms uh, that quickly uh, became apparent as well into the procedures um, of the Bryce Committee. Uh, the first of them is that the witnesses are, are anonymous, except in a few cases of captured German diaries. Uh, but even there, there is some, some degree of anonymity uh, applied to them. Um, the anonymity of the witnesses was at the request of the Belgian government. Um, who were worried um, that if witnesses were named, uh, that would expose family members to German retaliation. Uh, whether or not they were right in this, this is certainly a request that wasn't, was made by the Belgian government. 
There is the issue of the lack of full legal cross-examination, uh, which has become uh, a, an issue ever since Harold Cox first raised it. There was, of course, no defence counsel um, for uh, the German army um, in the report of the Price Committee. Um, there is, in that sense, a, a lack of um, attempt to see the other side of the, of, of the story, um, even though, of course, the Germans uh, were perfectly capable of responding once it was published and did. Um, and finally, uh, and this becomes an issue in, in the historical story of uh, the Bryce Committee, uh, there has been a failure to preserve the initial documentation. Um, and this is historiographically contentious. Now, James Bryce certainly himself wanted um, the original depositions of the witnesses to be preserved and made available. Um, but they weren't during the war. And then at some point in the post-war period, they get lost. We are not entirely sure what the story is. Um, when the American historian James Morgan Reed uh, is uh, researching his, at the time, doctoral thesis, which later becomes his book on uh, atrocities and atrocity propaganda, he requests to see the original Bryce deposition and is told at this point um, by um, the uh, British archives, um, that, uh, or public record office, of course, as it was then, uh, that they hadn't been preserved. Um, and this is immediately before the Second World War. But the plot then thickens because shortly after this, um, uh, they then, there is then a letter to, to him saying, no, actually, we found them, uh, that we do have the original depositions. But, of course, this is then interrupted by the outbreak of the Second World War, um, and the original depositions have never been found. Now, it is possible... Uh, well, draw your own conclusions. You can draw almost any conclusion you like, but one possible conclusion is that they did exist and then they're destroyed by enemy action during the Second World War. We certainly don't seem to have them now. Um, so these are some of the criticisms um, that have been made of the process of evidence gathering uh, for the Bryce report. There is then further uh, criticism uh, which has become almost standard of the tone of the report, uh, which is usually described as you know, hysterical... Um, uh, lurid um, exaggeration of um, outrages against children, outrages against women, um, and the idea that this is actually being um, you know, magnified out of all proportion to the actual behaviour of, of, of the German army. So these are, these are, in a sense, have become the standard uh, critiques of, of the Bryce Report at, at, from, the, from the 1920s onwards. Um, this has got to the point where if you, if you look at Bryce's uh, um, online dictionary of national biography entry, it states there um, that uh, the conclusions of the Bryce report were largely refuted in the post-war period. Uh, so that's, in a, for a long time, was the state of understanding of, of, of the Bryce report. Um, by contrast, um, Ponsonby's falsehood in wartime, when it comes out in 1928, is very favourably received. Um, it comes out at a, a moment where there's a lot of reflection um, on uh, the nature of the First World War in the 1920s. There is, if, if you like, a sort of 10th anniversary questioning of what it is all about. And there is a public very ready to hear that they had been lured into war under false pretenses or that they'd been lured into sustaining the war effort under false pretenses. Uh, Ponsonby is um, given further amplification by the fact that one of the stories in Falsehood and Wartime, that's about the, uh, the monks of Antwerp, is repeated uh, word for word, although without accreditation by Robert Graves um, in Goodbye to All That. And from Robert Graves' Goodbye to All That, this particular story about the monks of Antwerp 
drawn from Ponsonby uh, enters into almost all of the uh, historiographical literature right the way into the 1980s. Um, it's there, for example, in Neil Ferguson's book, Pity of War. It's there in uh, one of the books of my own uh, doctoral supervisor, Jay Winter. It, it simply gets repeated again and again as an example of the way that the Allied press invents atrocity stories. So um, at this point, we have a fairly sort of clear-cut picture. Um, James Bryce, in some ways, the unfortunate tool of the unscrupulous propaganda needs of the British state during the First World War, um, putting forward a report which is um, stitching up the poor Germans uh, with uh, a false uh, story of, of atrocities. Um, Arthur Ponsonby, the heroic truth-teller about propaganda and uh, lies in uh, public, who um, exposes how... Uh, terrible this all is. Although it should be noted that Ponsonby, and perhaps out of a degree of, um, sort of fellow liberal piety, never has a direct attack on Bryce anywhere in falsehood and wartime. He, he very much leaves that out. Point actually the Times reviewers pick up in 1928. They said, why didn't you have a go at uh, Bryce as well? Um, so that, that was for a very long time the standard story about British wartime propaganda. The problem is it's deeply misleading. Um, actually, Bryce was not refuted in the post-war period. Um, when the uh, stories, uh, which are the, the accounts which are published in the Bryce report are checked against, for example, the 1924 Belgian Committee of Inquiry, uh, where they are able to put names uh, and, and, and more detail to this, there is a tremendously high level of correlation. Um, much of what's in Bryce is actually borne out by post-war investigation. Not all of it, um, although very little is actually refuted uh, in the post-war period. So quite a lot of it is confirmed. Some of it remains very much unproven. Secondly, actually, if you read the Bryce report in detail, the lurid stories are not as prominent as most of the uh, historiography tends to suggest. They are certainly there, um, but the bulk of what is written in the Bryce report is entirely defensible as a conclusion about German army behaviour in Belgium in the First World War. Um, I uh, will quote the first point of the, uh, of the Bryce report. Uh, there were, in many parts of Belgium, deliberate and systematically organised massacres of the civilian population, accompanied by many isolated murders and other outrages. That's point one of the Bryce report. This is absolutely true. That's what happens. Uh, indeed, in some cases, Bryce actually understates the number of civilian casualties that occur in particular uh, Belgian villages. Now, it's probably the case that it does give a slightly distorted vision towards the number of women and children victims, rather than bringing out what's the, the core of the atrocities that occur in Belgium in 1914, which is the murder of adult males. Um, but that certainly does occur on a very large scale. Um, and so, you know, that, that does hold up. Um, and could go on and if, if people want to ask questions about that, I will pick them up later. On the other hand, um, Arthur Ponsonby's falsehood in wartime does not stand up well under investigation as one of the few people I think has ever tried to do this. Uh, if you look at this book, um, there are almost no actual citations of sources. Um, as far as you can tell the sources, they are usually coming from um, uh, very ideologically driven American isolationist uh, sources, in some cases directly from German propaganda. And indeed, the famous story of the, uh, of, of the monks of Antwerp was a German propaganda story, uh, which Ponsonby simply repeats wholesale. And this has been known actually ever since, again, James Morgan Reed investigated this uh, back in 1939. 
I would probably go as far as saying, just to be a little provocative, that falsehood in wartime um, is valueless as a historical source. It is so unreliable. Um, it should never be used as a serious um, uh, reflection on British First World War propaganda. Uh, I could defend that further, and if anybody wants to ask questions, I, I will pick that up. Um, in other words, the, the, the great truth-teller, Ponsonby, is in fact actually engaged himself in a, in a very large effort of propaganda. Now, again, I think it's, it's to some extent being done in good, good faith. I mean, he will repeat stories uh, that he has read somewhere um, and you know, actually take them at face value as long as they confirm his own view. Um, but certainly, if you actually start looking at the reliability of these stories, they are really not very reliable at all. Um, and, you know, just to take this a little bit further, I mean, uh, Ponsonby um, becomes involved um, in uh, the peace movement in the interwar period, and that, in the end, is what's driving his exposure of wartime lies. But it also leads him into doing things like, for example, opposing um, the uh, attempt to expose um, the Ukrainian famine. Uh, he's a, a, a doubter and a disbeliever of this. Um, he opposes uh, the Labour Party's support for sanctions against Mussolini's Italy um, during the Abyssinian crisis. And ultimately, Ponsonby resigns from the Labour Party when the Labour Party joins Churchill's coalition in May 1940. Um, Ponsonby uh, has a serious stroke in 1943, so we will never know what Ponsonby's attitude would have been to Second World War atrocities, as the stories come out in 1945. Um, but it is possible, as with certain other members of the Peace Pledge Union, he would have applied uh, heavy levels of scepticism to the idea that the Third Reich had been going around killing uh, innocent civilians as well. Um, so, at this point, um, I think I should probably um, pull this uh, towards some sort of halt, but I think uh, I would like to uh, put forward uh, my conclusion on this, which is, if it comes to it, what, what is the problem, what is the trouble with uh, atrocity propaganda, well, the trouble and the problem with it is sometimes it's true. 